Hello, and welcome back to the Bench to Boardroom podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Steele, and today's format is going to be a little different from usual because over the weekend, I had the tremendous pleasure of attending the Glaucoma 360 meeting. And what we have for you today is a panel discussion recapping Friday's New Horizons Forum, which is a meeting where companies and startups present some of their newest and latest and greatest data, preclinical data, all the way up to their newest clinical work, all in the field of ophthalmology. So today's guests are returning guests, Barbara Roscoe, Dr. Cheryl Rowe-Rendelman, and new guest, Dr. Julie Whitcomb. And we talk about what we're excited about, what we noticed in the meeting. And the goal really is to excite all of you about new endeavors in the field of ophthalmology and what we see as the gaps in the research. So enjoy. Welcome to this very special uh, bonus episode of the Bench to Boardroom podcast. As always, I am your host, Cynthia Steele, and I am joined today by some of my uh, phenomenal colleagues who uh, went with me to the, uh, we all just attended the Glaucoma Research Foundation New Horizons Forum meeting, where we got to hear all about the newest innovations in glaucoma research uh, at the corporate level, um, anything that's in the pipeline and things that we can look forward to as in terms of future innovations. And so I've invited them here so we can talk to you about uh, some of the things that excited us the most about today. So let's uh, quick go around the room and uh, do some introductions. We do have two returning Bench to Boardroom guests and one future Bench to Boardroom guest here. Cheryl? Introduction. Yeah, I'm, quick introduction. I'm Dr. Cheryl Rowe Rendelman. I'm the CEO and managing consultant at Omar Consulting Group. Hi, my name is Julie Whitcomb, and I am the head of medical affairs at Inovia. We're a small but mighty startup that has uh, actually our first FDA-approved product for dilation, which is uh, takes basically the device that creates a drop or eye drops into an ophthalmic spray. So I'm happy to be here and talk about more about medical affairs and what I saw today. Thanks, Cynthia. So Barbara Roscoe, I am a adjunct professor at the University of Utah, both in ophthalmology and biomedical engineering, and then a serial entrepreneur with startups. Of course. So the really, it seemed like the morning began with um, discussions about um, the conglomerate of glaucoma treatments and between surgical devices and drops, and it does seem like we are starting to move away from pharmaceuticals in terms of drops. Um, and Julie, you could probably speak more to, more to that. But um, it does seem like the emphasis is becoming now people want more personalized treatments, right, as you and I were talking about, Barb. So what, um, actually, we can, we can start with you. What, 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 uh, what excites you about this idea of personalized medicine in terms of ophthalmology? You know, I always tell my patients that we basically classify them as having glaucoma, and it's a bit of a wastebasket. Sure. And They'll ask, you know, what type, and I try to describe the different types, but then even as we were talking about the genetics behind it, and I think where the innovation is going to come, even with sustained release and home, you know, interventions, diagnostics, it really is that personalized 
perspective because not every glaucoma patient is the same and mm -hmm. they're so variable and their therapies should be different as well. Agreed. We, we treat cancer that way. Exactly. We, we find the genetic basis for that particular tumor or look for some particular um, weakness, so to speak, genetic weakness in that particular tumor so that way we can target that. But we, we don't yet do that with, with no, glaucoma, not even close. And even with our clinical studies, and, and Cheryl can talk more to this too, we group patients, you know, as POAG. Yes. But there are so many different types of primary glaucoma. Mm -hmm. So a colleague of ours actually said that we should get the P out of POAG and just call it open angle glaucoma, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. What do you think, Cheryl? I had an interesting interaction earlier in the meeting. Just before the meeting, I was able to have breakfast with two patients who had attended the meeting. They were uh, normal tensive glaucoma patients. And they each had had a different kind of treatment paradigm. Mm -hmm. And I began talking to them about what was their journey in glaucoma. One had been in a clinical trial. She had received an implant for CNTF, a growth factor. Mm -hmm. Another one had received surgery. Okay. And uh, they were both now on Rapotan. And I asked about their satisfaction with the trajectory they'd taken and neither were satisfied mm. neither were satisfied they wanted uh, first of all more to be done they wanted access to more clinical trials um they wanted more personalized medicine mm -hmm. uh, for each of them i was personally gratified to be able to have had the interaction in the first place because typically at the meeting, uh, there are you know, folks like me who are in the, the regulatory and scientific space for, like you, Barb, and we just don't get the interaction with patients who are not the ones that are depending on us for care, but who are actually there as advocates for themselves. Mm -hmm. I thought that was incredibly powerful Agreed. to hear them speaking. And one of them even asked a question, and he was very passionate. He really was. He was. Yeah, he really passionate. was. That that was very moving when he came up to the podium. Yeah, yeah. And I, one thing that I I was frustrated from the answers from the panel is that he didn't get a clear answer. He didn't. No. And they just went around around the question, and I mean, without just being honest and saying we don't know, because that's I think one of the things about glaucoma is we really don't know. All we do is treat IOP, but and, and this is the question I've always asked: How do we measure neuroprotection? I hear it, and everything we talk about. Even yet, last night we were talking about raising funds to, to understand it, but there's no really good way to measure it clinically. And so again, they're in the dark. You know, I mean, no pun intended, but yeah. It's, and and today we had it parsed even further. There's neuroprotection and there's neuroenhancement. Yes. Yes. <laughs> We're just going to subdivide yes. it even more. Yes. <laughs> subdividing is if that's yeah. going to lead us to a better way of mm -hmm. describing what we're trying to do. It's very difficult to claim, as Wally Chambers said, um, one or the other. Mm -hmm. So you don't get an indication for neuroprotection or an indication for neuroenhancement if you can't measure neuroprotection. Yeah nor neuro in health. Yeah. 
And it seems incredibly difficult if you're talking about neuroprotection, what you're talking about is cessation of loss. Mm -hmm. You know, so your, your yeah. vision goes down to a certain extent and then it just stops going down. There's not a point that we can start getting it back. Those cells don't regenerate. Yeah. So when when a former FDA head of ophthalmology, Wiley Chambers, said to us, you have to show uh, improvement. There is no way to show improvement. All you can show is that it stops getting bad. Yeah, so the, I think there was a giant so shrug down. in the audience when he said that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because currently we don't have the tools. So if there was anything if someone listening to this podcast want to work on, yeah. it would be the tools. And tools. You know, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. No, that, that's something that I actually, I had a very similar conversation with Murray Johnstone, who is, you know, he's amazing. He's the famous in the world of ophthalmology. And he was saying that's one thing that we're, we're going back to the beginning when we should work near closer to that near end. And then we can chip away at it. Mm -hmm. It's like, I, I think about it, you know, you're talking about you're an engineer and you, you, what you are in the engineering department. Like I'm a trained engineer and I think about reverse engineering. You see another friend and you work, you work backwards to understand it. And that's what we need to do is approach this is not start from the beginning and work our way up, but is to reverse, reverse engineer. engineer yeah. yeah. And I, I don't think that we've grasped that. And I think that's, you know, one thing that I think a lot of the researchers and the scientists that are starting their career, maybe that's maybe how to approach it is not want to go so big into this endeavor, but start small and like any level of improvement is, is better than none. And I think one of the things she said too is, you know, getting back to how do you assess and measure neuroprotection or neuroenhancement or neurorestoration is you can look at structure, but if you improve structure, you don't necessarily improve function. So they don't always correlate. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, at the end of the day, it has to be a functional improvement. How do you measure that? And how so, do you measure that? You know, um, the FDA has accepted, obviously, visual fields. They've also accepted contrast sensitivity. Mm -hmm. So we have the tools um, and I think we can learn so much. You've, um, Cynthia and I have talked about this with Luxturna. Yes. So it's really activities, visual activities, or visual function under uh, low illumination. Right. And that is another potential uh -huh. endpoint. So right. I think they're moving, I think we're moving in that direction. I think that if we were going to move in a direction of getting an indication of of neuroprotection or neuroenhancement, we would have to create a new tool. Agreed. 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 The way we had to do yeah. with Luxturna, yeah. exactly. because best corrected visual acuity was too blunt of an instrument Correct. to mm -hmm. determine whether or not that drug was working. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be a new assessment, a tool that will allow us to say that this is actually happening. Because as you said, doesn't follow anatomy. It doesn't follow structure. Mm -hmm. Nope. And for for those who don't know, this gene therapy was created for an inherited blinding disease. But the tools that we typically use to measure visual function um, really weren't sensitive enough really sensitive. Yeah. to exactly. to detect changes as a result of this really groundbreaking gene therapy and so structurally as i understand it structurally they did see some changes but functionally they didn't so what they what this company did was they actually created a and i learned this at the aopt meeting yes. last year they created a maze 
for these children and they and the children had to do the maze at different levels of light and those levels of light were very very well controlled and that is how they were able to show that the children after a certain amount of time who had had the gene therapy could navigate the maze at lower levels of light meaning that they had some preserved or some enhanced visual function and so i think i love this idea because it shows us that the boundaries that we are working in right now need to expand yes because all we have right now is lowering iop and maybe using rat models animal models and measuring you know quantifying the number of cells in the retina but we we can do better or we should innovate more functional tests right now when that mobility test was created it wasn't just created de novo mm-hmm. there were meetings with patients to ask them what kinds of changes in your life would you consider um relevant or useful navigating in low light was one of them and there was no tool at that time mm-hmm. to demonstrate the capacity to navigate in dim light that became the beginning of this tool so there were several iterations until they realized that let's in order to definitely demonstrate that something is happening we'd have to put in a tunable luminance and then you could see and parse how well these patients were doing yeah at one luminance it wasn't enough mm-hmm. and this is what the patients wanted so grf is in a position to ask those kinds of questions mm-hmm. of patients with normal tensive and ocular and open angle glaucoma they're in that position to ask what would you consider as a critically relevant outcome for you from a new drug? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what's interesting, Cheryl, is one of the things that I'll always hear from my patients too is their visual acuity may not change, but so often it's the contrast and yeah. you lose contrast yes. with glaucoma. So again, if we could ever get to a place, sure, we've got you know various measures and diagnostics to assess contrast, but they're not, I guess they're validated, but they're not consistently used and they're not the same and they're not just a a good endpoint yet. Mm -hmm. So if we can develop something like that, and back to you, what you said, Julie, is where do people start? Mm -hmm. You know, what do we need? We need a tool that measures something that impacts the patient that you can assess and say, okay, this is, this change is clinically relevant. Yeah. And inherently we're in the dark. We don't have that tool because we're right. shooting for a goal that we can't see. We can't see. And and I think what's one thing that, you know, the FDA, they have these clear, they're very black and white in their approaches to getting things approved. I mean, I think what was the panel they're talking about, Timolol. No one uses Timolol as the first line of therapy, Correct. but yet it's this the first thing that all companies or any product that wants to get approved is is put against. But again, it's the lowest bar to know to get it to the market mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, real world evidence is different than a controlled con- clinical trial. You can yeah. somewhat manipulate the data in your favor by choosing your patient population. So it's, I mean, it's a, it's a tricky s- slope. And at the same time, I think we need a lot of scientists and people that are studying this to, to go and, and flux into the FDA and understand this. Cause I think sometimes that the people that does a the review, they may not, 
you know, this is all new to them too. So they're learning with us. And, mm-hmm. and these meetings are great because we can partner with, mm-hmm. with totally. the industry, with the FDA, with doctors, with patients. Totally. That's the only way to move the needle in a sense. I, I really, I did not know that, that the patients were asked what would be the most meaningful thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that's something, at least as researchers, I would forget to do all the time. You know, and I mean, granted, I didn't know any patients. I didn't know any glaucoma patients as I was researching glaucoma, but I would read papers and think, that's really cool. I want to look into that. But at the end of the day, if a, and I, I think this came up um, when we were looking at the, those IOP detecting contact lenses, yeah. you have to think about whether a patient is actually going to use it. Yeah. So I, don't know if you guys, I don't know if you guys saw that when the, the uh, it was the drug eluding contact lens that had a white rim around it. And so any patient who wore it would have a white rim around their iris and they would look like a cyborg. <laughs> not, not even that, if you're 80 years old, putting a contact lens in could be hard. You have a hard time with the eyebrow. So I don't think the 80 year old market is their demographic. I yeah. think their demographic is more like the young, uh, young uh, person who is still gainfully employed who is losing their vision rapidly mm-hmm. um, and needs to have a very vigilant dosing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Actually, that contact that. lens does that and it tunes the dosing. Yep. Now, the heuristics, what it looks like, that can be worked on. Sure. Yeah, agreed. Definitely. So let's actually talk about eye drops because we did learn a little bit today about some new drops that might be on the market or new combinations that might be coming together. And so I'm going to start with you, Julie, because what, I mean, let's talk about, we can all talk about, but I'll start with you. What, what are the limitations of eye drops and how, where does that, where does Inovia come in? Yeah, well, Inovia, I think um, one of the, the kind of main goals is to eliminate some of those issues, which are as and matter of fact, the eye drop is, is more volume that you actually need from overfills and spills. And there's a lot of side effects specifically with uh, like PGAs. They cause, you know, uh, preorbital fat loss. You get lengthening of eyelashes. I'll, although I know some patients do like that side effect. Um, there's, you know, darkening of the skin around the eye. So um, the OptiJet is a device that basically uses piezoelectric technology and it administers an ophthalmic spray. It's a micro volume, eight microliters roughly. So it coats the cornea evenly. Um, it beats uh, your blink response, so which is another um, added bonus. And it, you also can be um, vertical. You don't have to mm-hmm. tilt your head back. So for patients that have, say, issues handling the device, I mean, handling eye drops with a squeeze force, you can just easily administer it with a push of a button. So it is a push button. Yeah, so it's just one press. So if you have any dexterity issues, that's also mm-hmm. an added bonus. It, every time I see the video, it reminds me of my asthma inhalers. Someone is like that. It kind of aerosolizes it. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it creates these micro droplets that mm-hmm. coat the cornea surface. Mm-hmm. I was so impressed with that. And it, this is in the trajectory of moving us towards a dropless society. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I I love the idea that it beats the, the blink. Say, it's faster yeah. than the blink reflex. And I, is it... Can you use any kind of formulation with it? Or I mean, does there is it have to be a, a formulation that adheres to specific 
specifications in order for it to be aerosolized in that way? Um, well, that's kind of a two-part question. So it's a drug device. So in order to get approved the FDA, you have to go through both the pharmaceutical and then the device arm. And so you have to prove that it works because it is a micro volume. So you have to have a comparator. Um, um, and the second is that it there is some limitations due to the viscosity of the formulation. So if it's very thick, uh, that probably wouldn't um, necessarily work in the current device. But, you, you know, those are things you can easily modify and test. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest issue is that you have to go through clinical trials, phase three on a product or, you know, a compound that already works. Like we, we did that for our first approval of product Midcombi, which is a dilation drop. So it's the first to market of a fixed dose combination. But say if we want to go with just a PGA, we'd have to go through a phase three mm -hmm. clinical trial. Mm -hmm. So and that just, you know, adds more time. And, and yeah. eventually it would be ideal for us to file for like a 510K as a device. These mm -hmm. are, but at the end of the day too, you have to think about profit. You know, we're yeah. a company and the cost of goods are, is a definitely added expense versus just an eyedrop bottle. These yeah. are all things that that also I think are somewhat limiting is that you have to always think about how much you're going to make at the end of the day versus the patient. And, you know, I would I would ideally like to have to see it where we we use SLT and then we go to the OptiJet. All right. Know? Yeah, because now you know, Ike Ahmed came and talked to us about interventional glaucoma. Um, and I, I, I like this concept because it is a way of saying, we're not going to wait for your glaucoma to be mm -hmm. so bad yeah. that we're actually going to do something about it. You know, we're, or we're not going to give you an eye drop that we know you're probably going to take, what do you think, Barb, 30%, 50% of the time? I think it really depends upon the patient. Sure. I mean, I've got, Maybe I see the worst of the worst, but I have patients that are so religious mm -hmm. with okay. their eye drops. I do love using SLT, and we are using SLT more and more as first line because yeah. of the yeah. light study that mm -hmm. came out. Yeah. Um, but Cynthia kind of knows my my bias. I think a lot of it is relating to IOP fluctuation. Yes. That's occurring outside the office. So, so I think a lot diary. of our, yeah. I think a lot of our patients are progressing because we're not controlling their IOP. And so, um, one of the one of the first graphs that we saw today was about how the how basically glaucoma surgeries have really taken off mm -hmm. big time, um, and particularly the more micro invasive, the minimally invasive surgeries like the stents and the shunts that um, can be done in context of cataract surgery can be largely done by any ophthalmologist. They don't have to be glaucoma specific uh, specific ophthalmologists, and. The one downside to, I mean, so the upside of surgery is that the patient most likely will not need drops or will be able to decrease the number of drops that they need for at least the immediate, you know, few months, six months, 12 months, something like that. Inevitably, it does seem like, you know, eventually another intervention is needed and uh, SLT is another means to lower that pressure and decrease that drop load or that drop burden for at least a little while. I guess... It, what's been interesting to me is to see how we really have started to pivot away from these new molecules and these exciting new, it, it, was, it was always, the, what's the new mechanism of action? Yeah. You know, that, that that's what MSLs like, like us lived on, is let's talk mechanism of action. But I mean, 
when I was at BNL, when we first launched our new drug, I mean, I thought we had the best mechanism of action out there. But the the drop was $150. It's almost impossible to compare. I, I would go to cities and talk to doctors and they would say, well, my patients, they can barely afford their $5 Timolol. Yeah. And I would say, you know what? Then obviously this is not for you, yeah. you know? And so I understand the appeal of why we're pivoting more to like a laser therapy or surgical therapy or sustained delivery. Yes. Do yes. you think in your opinion, like you, you just, that is like treating the patient population that you are seeing. So say you, you know, you lived in a more impoverished or you treat more of an impoverished population who they have a fixed budget monthly and $5 is a stretch or what $8, $10. And then they all of a sudden, you know, like, Oh, you should try this new drug, but it's not covered. Like they would, they have a fixed budget and, and glaucoma right. is not their only yeah. disease that they're treating. Usually, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, like how do you treat a patient in like that situation? So it's doing again, like a laser procedure, but a lot of times laser is not, I mean, we can always start with laser. All the studies show that laser works best in the new treatment IE patient mm -hmm. that probably has mild to moderate damage, if at best. Um, I think about laser as being equal to the efficacy of like a beta blocker. So you're getting 20 to 25% IOP lowering. But now what we've been doing, which is fascinating too, is if a patient has hydrus mm -hmm. and or an eye stent mm -hmm. and is perhaps on a prostaglandin and we want to get additional IOP lowering, we will go back and do an SLT even with angle-based surgery. Oh, wow. And we're getting really good responses. Hmm. So it really is that personalized yeah, yeah. medicine package. We try to give the patient sort of a little bit of this and that, mm -hmm. depending upon the patient, their economic situation, the type of glaucoma they have, how advanced they are, you know, and then there's other patients that are yeah. just so advanced, really like they need a trap. In a way, too, like, it's that. like the order of operations dependent as yes. well. There is something to that point. I think we're getting, at least for me, the way I teach my residents and fellows, and I brought this up, is do not drug stack. Okay. So many of us have been taught 20, 30 years ago, just keep adding medications on. Yeah. And you're receiving very little benefit for that each additional drug. And mm -hmm. I've had patients where, you know, they come in on their own four different medications and I'll take them back down to one and their IOP is about the same. Wow. And their ocular surface is actually better it's now better, yeah. because yeah, not so much BAK. Horrible right. with all these medications. Right. Um, and then you can kind of reevaluate and say, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do a, you know, a mixed procedure? Are we going to try SLT or we're going to go to something more basic? So, but, Every patient's different. Yeah, no, and this does go back yeah. to the whole concept of personalized medicine and the need for other diagnostics and some way to figure out what's underlying a patient's glaucoma. But Cheryl, I wanted to ask you, because a very provocative question was asked during one of the sessions, which is, are we completely heading away from drops? You know, are we, in <laughs> 10 years, is no one going to be using drops anymore? What, what did you think? I thought that the answers felt as if there was no forward-looking thinking on that panel. Okay. Because I guess there were five men on the panel and four out of five said, yeah, we're still going to have drops in 15, 20 years. And then only one said, mm -hmm, no, I don't think so. 
And and I kind of side with that one mm -hmm. because you know where are there many franchises out there that are drop heavy, drop specific, who haven't thought of re-engineering or weren't at the space yet where they yeah. could re-engineer their drugs so that it could be delivered in a different way. So there were, yeah, we're going to use drops, but drops are, are not very well tolerated. And I think there was something along the lines of 63% of people, although they use their drops, we're not using them in the appropriate way. So that in turn becomes uh, you know, less medicine in the right place, mm -hmm. yeah. more of it on the cheek, um, more medicine or more eye drop tips that can be contaminated. And as you know, the FDA recalled a bunch of drops last summer. Yeah. Yes, they did. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so there is a, a feeling, you know, among the public who read those FDA recalls, among the, the folks who are doing research, said, if I can deliver a drug without drops, I'm better off. How can I do that? Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, we are moving in the direction now of, of um, taking some of our drugs and 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 putting them into implants or some kind of of uh, you know intracameral delivery system such that small amounts of the effective drug is delivered on an hour by hour basis to the tissues that need it mm -hmm. and i think this is where we should begin to look i'm not saying implants is the only thing we can look at no. but Right now, that's kind of where we are. There are so much new research that's okay. going on out there for different ways of getting these drugs into the eye. And what's interesting, too, is even cataract surgery alone will lower IOP. Yeah, absolutely. And you have the opportunity to do a mixed procedure at the same time. So a lot of my patients, you know, I'll do an SLT first line or I'll start them on a prostaglandin. And then I'll always say, look, you've got a cataract. Mm -hmm. Instead of just adding additional medications on, we could even consider taking your cataract out and then doing a stent at the same time or an angle-based surgery, mm -hmm. which will, you know, at worst keep you on one drop, perhaps get you off medications, control the IOP. So you're right. And again, it personalized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every patient is different. I'm actually going to make my father do that. He's been waiting to get his, his cataract isn't bad yet. You he know? has glaucoma. Um, he has glaucoma in one eye. And I think I talked to you when he first started his drops. Um, he's on a PGA and mm -hmm. he was getting very powerful headaches on just that one side. I think particularly if he sneezed or if he laughed, anything that kind of like raised the pressure on that side a little bit. And he would being my dad, he would say, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. You know, I, I'm fine. But I told him when you decide to get your cataract surgery, I want you to call me. I'm going to drive down. I'm going to talk to your doctor. <laughs> we're we're going to get you, we're going to get you a nice dent inject or yeah. something. At the I, time. I had a patient the other day who has cataracts and glaucoma or actually had cataract surgery. And her doctor had talked about doing the cataract mix at that time. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, did not do the mix. And I mean, I, you know, 
feel terrible saying this, but I almost think it's malpractice. It's such a shame because that was the one opportunity because that's when insurance will cover yes. that. Yes. Yes. And really. if you yes. did not have that procedure, you make that all you're, mm-hmm. you're out of luck. You're out of luck. And it's funny that you say that because I heard that exact word malpractice used um, when Medicare was talking about the MIGS devices about this time last year. They had a panel of experts on that call and someone said, I think that if you don't offer MIGS at the time of cataract surgery for a patient that's glaucoma suspect or on glaucoma medications, early stage glaucoma, that because so much of our so much of our medications seem to target that like more moderate to severe patient and we're trying again to step it back in a more interventional yeah. a more interventional mindset to say no let's let's take that very mild patient who still has high IOP and maybe is only on one drop give them the stent preserve their ocular surface for a little while spare them the, the side effects of the drops and just that burden of having to remember and if you don't, that that word was used. That might be considered. They would. They said I would consider that malpractice. Wow. So that's the second time I've heard you say that. You know, one thing that I think that doesn't get brought up enough is the quality of life for the patient. Yes. Yes. And um, it's not. You know, so many glaucoma says physicians say that they give cat- our cornea doctors a job because they ruin the surface due to <laughs> all of the preservatives. I mean, that's one thing that I. I mean, I suffer from dry eye, and I think about. If you have glaucoma managing this, and then on top of it, your eyes are irritated. It mm-hmm. just sounds like a horrible position right. to be in. And you have to remember to take these every day. And so, you know, that's one thing, too, that the um, the Optijet, what we are working towards, has the ability to yes, monitor. To monitor. Yeah, and yeah. that's something that's so important for glaucoma because glaucoma patients is they forget. And then mm-hmm. these will automatically go to their phone. And, you know, we're entering the age where... And, 20 years, you know, everyone will be be a cell phone adequate and they'll be able to do all these technology things. And I think that is something, you know, we track ourselves with our watches mm-hmm. and all these other devices. Why not track our progress with glaucoma? People love metrics, you know. They do. They do. My dad is a has glaucoma and barely takes his med- medication. And I, I'm just like, I, I really don't understand. <laughs> but he'll monitor his Fitbit. It's mm-hmm. like if you had the same thing where you could monitor your drops and your medication, yeah. you'd be on top of it. Yeah. So if this thing can remind me to stand up 10 minutes before the end of every hour, it yeah. should be able yeah. to remind me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, so so these are all the things that I, I sometimes think we forget to, to mm-hmm. monitor is that quality of life portion. And, you yeah. know, so many glaucoma patients, are, they are suffering, you know, like yeah. the, the, the pain of dry eye and all these other things that they have to deal with on top of everything. So I think that's one important thing that we need to be aware of and address. Yeah. I mean, patient is the most, most important, not this whole equation. So let's, let's, let's continue on that uh, in terms of monitoring, because you, you, Barb, uh, headed up a, a nice panel discussion about uh, home monitoring and ways that people can monitor their glaucoma progression at home. And so we saw, obviously, with um, my eyes, you offer eye care home, at-home tonometers so patients can measure their IOP just from the comfort of their own home. Um, and then we heard a few presentations on visual field assessments yeah. at home. And one of the things that I actually thought was very interesting is there's a couple of companies that are looking to using essentially VR goggles as a way to measure 
um, have a patient do a visual field test at home. But one presented a visual field test that could just be done from your computer. And personally, I think that's a, I think that's a fantastic idea because the comparison that he made was, uh, you know, a lot of these people can't even, they don't really know how to even work their cell phone. My, 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 going back to my dad, he yes. just got a yeah. brick cell phone and yeah. <laughs> because my mom got tired of him going off for walks into the beach and everything without any form of communication. And I had to show him, <laughs> okay, dad, you open the phone. If you press one, that'll call mom. If you press two, that will call my sister, you know, and I know my dad's an intelligent man, but he was not born in America. And if you talk to him, it would sound like he came over from Croatia yesterday, even though he's lived in America for 50 years. I think he just, he likes his life. He likes how he likes things. And so for him to ask him to put on VR goggles, this would just blow his mind. But he, my mom, my mom does have an iPad and she knows how to use, you know, um, she knows how to use it to call the kids, call the grandkids, you know, and talk to them. And I love that he said, you do this the same way that you would do yes. a FaceTime with your grandchildren. So what did you think about your, your panel and the, some of the responses that you got with regards to it was, it was really, um, I think it was really cool. You know, I think we're definitely moving to in the direction where patients can monitor themselves. Again, mm -hmm. I keep equating it to diabetes, blood pressure, yeah, oncology. Yeah. They can manage, they can follow, they can mm -hmm. see, you know, especially for IOP, so many of these patients are in fact fluctuating to very high numbers and mm -hmm. they would never have known it if they weren't able to yeah. check their IOP outside the office. Um, in terms of the visual field, there's so many different devices and the clearance is not straightforward. So people, you know, and, and Cheryl will get what I'm saying, you know, these companies will state that they are FDA exempt, FDA listed, mm -hmm. but they're technically not FDA cleared. Or if mm -hmm. they are, they're class ones, so they haven't done clinical studies. So I think there's a lot of the jury's out. Mm -hmm. Um, as Lama said, yeah. you know, and it's, or Jason actually said, buyer beware. I think, yes. I think time will tell because there's so many things that you need to control for. Uh, one of the key things we need to control for is lighting. Yeah. Mm. And you can't do that yeah. unless you have some sort of contained system. Right. Right. So, I mean, I think a lot of those kind of technologies also go hand in hand with clinical trials. Yes, right? exactly. Yes. And then you get kind of a two for one, I think. I, I sure. think that's but no I one's going to risk their clinical trial assessment uh, money on uh, something that hasn't yet been approved. You can put it in as an exploratory endpoint. Cool. Yeah. If, for instance, the company says, yeah, we'll let you have these for free. But clinical trials are expensive. And the more... Mm -hmm assessments you put in the higher your price your charge per assessment per patient in a clinical trial and those assessments require measurements and then there's an extra piece on top of that yeah. so there unless there is a really clear cut and dry packet on how to do the assessment and then do the measurement and then do the interpretation so it can become part of your clinical trial data. You know, it's not going to be taken up very readily. It will be uh, used by office providers, people who have offices. So 
lots of patients in them who are interested in technology. And uh, that technology is actually being launched, soft launched today, as it was said. And yeah. mm -hmm. that means that they are going to be, and I, I spoke to, to the folks on the company, that means that they're going to knock on the doors of 60 different offices um, who said, yeah, we'd like to know a little bit more and we'll try it if we like it. That's mm -hmm. a soft launch. Yeah. And next year, they're hoping to come back to this meeting with some data, hard data from use uh, mm -hmm. by these clinics. There, there may be a clinical protocol for them to use it so that the data can actually be comparable. Mm -hmm. um, That's true. But um, yeah, yeah. they're working on that right now. So mm -hmm. I don't see it being used in a clinic, an independent clinical trial. Yeah, it's yeah. their own clinical yeah. trial. Yeah. I mean, I think another area, too, that I, I think that hasn't fully been touched upon in the area is like diagnostic equipment like OCT. Mm -hmm. And using a uh, you know past historic data and finding trends so that you can maybe predict and understand the disease state earlier. I know there's a lot of companies that are doing that, but I think it's a little bit harder for diagnostic equipment to get to the market. It's a lot more expensive. There's a lot of things they do when you have to you know utilize historic data, which in interpret that information. But I think there's room for that too. That maybe not just with the treatment, but like the prevention would be early on. Absolutely. Understanding if you're high risk before you have any visual field loss. Yeah. So I, last question for you guys, for you ladies, before I, I let everybody go and thank you so much for your time. We, I think all noticed that the, the foundation tried to do a very good job putting up diverse panelists with regards to the people who are moderating the sessions you know and you know plenty of women up there plenty of people of color but the companies still sent and i'll say exactly what i said to you cheryl they send their oldest whitest man to sit on the panels and i i just couldn't help but notice it every panel i know i texted you about yeah. it too are, are, are you noticing this uh -huh. so true. you did point it out to me i, I did but the thing is I didn't think about it until you told me because that's the standard norm. That is the norm. Isn't yes. that funny? No, it's not funny. It's sad. Yeah. Okay. Sad, <laughs> sad we, funny, yeah. We continue. We left because we, we otherwise we cry. A lot of lip service to DEI as yes. yeah. companies do even more. They make big statements and mm -hmm. they make sure that their investors know that they are dedicated to it. However, there still needs to be a little bit more of this trickled down into the fabric of the company. And that would mean making sure, not just putting out a woman or putting out a person of color, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but making sure that are, there are people like that who are trained. It's merit-based. Exactly, and yeah. who are in that position so they can go out and represent. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think that's terribly important. I don't want to go just because I'm a black person. I want to go because I am the probably the most qualified Absolutely. and I'm credible. Absolutely. And are those people playing in that space? And sometimes the answer is no. Correct. Yeah, that's that's 
kind of ironic. I was just having this conversation before you grabbed me about that and how how do you distinguish checking the box of diversity, inclusion, and merit-based? Because I think sometimes what happens is that you just check that box of um, they're diverse, they're inclusive to our, our company standards, but then you lose that, but they deserve to be there. And then mm -hmm. people get that, oh, they're only there because they're black, they're they're um, this box, this box, this box. And it's like, that's cool. just not, not where I want to be. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I don't no, think any of us. That's the world we want. No. Yeah. I think, so what, what I think I, I try almost in every episode is to encourage the listeners that you, you should, first of all, you should consider a, a career in industry if you believe that it's right for you, regardless of what a, a mentor or somebody might be discouraging you or in different directions that they're encouraging you to go in. But I think we may get more of this merit-based if we can get more young women and more people of color who venture into, yep. in, into industry, if we can get more applicants. Um, and I think it was, it was someone at one of your previous companies who said, I want a medical science liaison that reflects where I live. You know, I want that. I want it like, for example, uh, in South Florida, I mean, if you don't have an MSL that speaks Spanish and it also goes down to Puerto Rico, I was the MSL in South Florida and in Puerto Rico, and I took German. I was completely lost. Mm. <laughs> I took the most useless language, <laughs> but at least at least in South Florida and Puerto Florida. Rico, yes. Florida. You know, <laughs> ultimately, if if I move to Europe, then I'll be okay. Yeah. But but you know, I I like I like this idea though that the more people we get and the more diverse group of applicants, then I think it, it almost become it has to become merit based. Or am I or am I being too Pollyannish about that? No, you're 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 creating a pool of more diverse fish. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Versus just yeah. it's all salmon, farm raised salmon, you know? It's like you want <laughs> to have you want something That's that funny. is well it's so each one of those those gentlemen on this panels, especially, uh, you know, the panels that were very egregious in the way you said, had mentored or particularly made a point of bringing someone who was not like them to the panel. Mm -hmm. I think we would have seen. I completely agree. Mm -hmm. So in our last two minutes, um, if we're talking to our audience of young residents, doctors, postdocs, junior faculty, um, just go around the table. What, what messages, what message would you want to leave them with? Besides apply. <laughs> Think outside the box. Think outside the box. Keep an open mind. Okay. And don't give up. Persevere. Hey, there's never a bad idea. Yep. Be curious and be passionate no matter if people tell you no, because sometimes someone will tell you yes, and they eventually will. All right. I would say remember the patient voice in the research that you're doing. I know that they may all be experts in a particular mouse model, but why and for mm -hmm. what does that reflect in the patient's experience? That's going to color the way you do your research and color the questions you ask mm -hmm. and perfect. that will lead to more effective therapies in my view. I think that's perfect. Yeah. Well, 
Sunday is International Women and Girls in Science Day. So happy International Women and Girls in Science Day. As we're all watching Taylor Swift's boyfriend play in the Super Bowl, we can also celebrate that day. I didn't know that, but thank you. Yes, so thank you. Thank you all for your time. This was wonderful. And yeah, I won't I won't keep you any longer. I know we're all very busy, but thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you. Let's do it again next time. Yeah, thanks. All right. I want to thank so many people, actually. I want to thank uh, Dr. Barbara Rosco, Dr. Cheryl Rovendelman, Dr. Julie Whitcomb for taking the time to join in on this panel discussion. It was phenomenal. I want to thank the Glaucoma Research Foundation, Tom Bruner, Nancy Graydon, uh, everyone on their staff, of course, uh, Dr. Andrew Ewa and Dr. An- Dr. Adrian Graves, who I want to be when I grow up, uh, for another fantastic meeting. It was absolutely wonderful. Um, And two other things. One, I want to wish everybody a happy International Women and Girls in Science Day. While everyone is watching the Super Bowl today, which is February 11th, it is also International Women and Girls in Science Day. So happy that day to all of you. And on a personal note, I found out this weekend that a pillar in glaucoma research has left us way too soon. So In honor of International Women and Girls in Science Day, I do want to dedicate this episode and send lots of love out to Griffin Samples. We will miss you tremendously. Thank you for listening and see you next time.